Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to another Cameo episode. These very short episodes will be slotted in between the other ones and will cover people who made a fleeting yet tantalizing appearance in other episodes. We don't always have a lot of information about them, so they can't have a full episode of their own, but they are too interesting to abandon completely, and they will fill in the gaps and enable us to create as full a picture of the year as we can. And today... Margaret Cabell. And I must admit, we've never mentioned her. No, but the name sounds familiar, so I've obviously read a snippet of her You might have somewhere. come across her story, yeah. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I'd, well, I'd not heard of her until recently, or not, wasn't aware of having heard of her. But once I read her story, I decided, no, that's too interesting to ignore. Ooh, okay. So there's going to be quite a preamble to this to set the scene. Okay. And we get to glimpse how Henry VII made laws. Oh. On a whim? <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> Francis Bacon wrote, quote, he may justly be celebrated for the best lawgiver to this nation after Edward I. Really? One quote. Mm. And he also claimed that these laws were not, quote, made upon the spur of a particular occasion for the present, <laughs> unquote. No whims. OK. <laughs> well, Bacon was very keen to give Henry all the attributes that James I liked to think he had himself. Right. He thought of himself as a good law lawgiver. Right. So Bacon was sort of ingratiating himself with the new king, I think. Gotcha. I'm just thinking, Edward I? A great lawgiver? He imprisoned two women in a cage. He did. He really he really um upset the Scots and he chucked all the Jews out, so Yeah. Not yeah. not a great comparison. I wouldn't have thought well, it makes Henry look good, I suppose. <laughs> You're going to have a heck of a time getting the rooks out of your sound. Yeah, I've, I've, I was going to warn people at the beginning. They were noisy before. Now they've got babies. Oh. I'm recording this on Shakespeare's birthday today. So April and they've all got nice little babies and they're making one hell of a racket. So <laughs> we'll do our best. Just going to have to accept it. Uh, many acts were passed in Henry VII's reign, but the one we're interested in was passed in 1487. Okay. And was called the Act Against Taking Away of Women Against Their Wills. Oh, that sounds good to me. Well, yes. <laughs> yes you think that. You would think, well, why has the why has it taken so long? Yes. But it made it a crime to abduct women. Right, because up until this time, I don't know how many people would realize this. There was an opportunity that you could abduct a woman marry her and consummate the marriage without her will and then it was solid you could not undo that because it was right by the church well we are going to yeah we're going to look at the laws leading up to this when i say it was a crime to abduct women not all women of course just quote women having substances unquote uh, wealthy women wealthy mm. yeah we're going to look at the laws leading up to it. The problem was, as you say, that the property of the woman went to the man when they married. Mm -hmm. So what easier way to make a quick buck than to marry her? Yes. Normally, a marriage settlement would allow for the wife to have a dower settlement yes. so that she'd have something to live on if her husband died. Usually, no such settlement was part of the marriage of an abducted woman. So she was in a worse position. Yeah, because she lost all her land and doesn't get any mm. of it back when the marriage is done. And no... Provision. Yeah. Well, I think the husband sees her not as a wife, but as property. Well, as a cash cow. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. 
it wouldn't be hard to persuade a woman to marry once she'd been abducted because she'd be away from home, friends and family. She'd be surrounded by all the cronies of the man who'd just abducted her. Yes. And some of them might be quite thuggish. Her honour was already gone as soon as she was alone with a man without a chaperone. Pretty much. And there was violence, threats of violence. And yeah, the possibility of rape. And as far as the man was concerned, rape helped his cause since he could either claim she'd consented, in which case it wasn't an abduction, or she was damaged goods. So he could point out no one's going to want her anymore. Yeah. And that was true. That was true, Mm. which is absolutely ridiculous. true. There were laws against rape. In 1275, rape was an offence that could be prosecuted only by the victim. So it was up to her to take the attack to court, which is a brave thing to do. Yes, because you are admitting your damaged goods and nobody would want you after that. Yeah, you might not have the backing of your family. Mm. So, yeah, mm, lonely place to be. Keep it quiet. We don't want anybody knowing this. Yes, if you have a baby, well, do it in the next county. and. Uh. If she consented to the marriage afterwards, she could not then claim that it was rape under this law. Right. In 1285, that's 10 years later, rape became a crime whether the woman consented to the marriage afterwards or not. So a bit more enlightened. Yes, except it never got upheld. Well, how many of the wives are going to be in a position to make an accusation of rape against their husbands? Yes. It's not going to happen. No. You just have to think about even just... I remember the 80s and 90s, if something happened to a girl, you were discouraged from taking it to court because it was your word against his. Mm. Uh, That hasn't gone away very quickly. We're still dealing with people not believing you. And the defense lawyer would rip you to pieces and imply that you were promiscuous. Yes. And what were you wearing? How low was your neckline? How short was your skirt? Yeah. Did you smile at him? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. 1382, the law was changed to say that where a woman consented to the marriage after the abduction, both husband and wife would lose the inheritance, dower and jointure, and the money and property would go to, quote, the next of blood, unquote. And the idea for that was that it wouldn't be worth a man abducting her if he couldn't be sure of keeping the money. Okay. And it was not just targeting abducted women, but also eloping couples. But then you'd still have to prove that you were abducted. Yeah, and the woman's lost the money as well. Yes. So, doesn't seem fair. No, it's still not protecting the woman in any real way. We're sort of inching closer, but... You're really protecting the property. It is a property Mm. crime. Yeah. In In 1453, the law was tightened to cover those who, while not raping the woman, abducted her and compelled her into marriage and persuaded her to enter into bonds, signing away her property. So, again, the abduction's not the crime. The property is the crime. Yeah. (laughs) This law provided a procedure for nullifying any any such bonds. So depriving the husband of the property. So getting there. But still leaving the woman destitute. Well, the woman would get to keep the property because the the bonds that she signed Ah. away are then nullified. Okay. But again, she's got to stand up in court and, yeah, not nice. No. So now we come to the 1840... No, we don't. Now we come to the 1487 law. And this made abduction in itself a crime, whether it was followed by rape or marriage or not. Okay. And several of the cases that we know of in Henry VII's time, the victim were children and they were taken by groups of labourers. So this, hopefully, seems a case of kidnap rather than abduction for marriage. Yes. 
But I mean, you don't like to think hopefully kidnap, but you're thinking, well, hopefully not abduction for marriage. I was thinking this can't be that common, but that's one of the reasons why Eleanor of Aquitaine married so quickly. Mm. She constantly had to be guarded because if she was abducted and forced to marry, then she would lose all her property. Yeah, and, and she would be a, spe- a special case because she had an awful lot of property. Yeah, she had but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, it it was known enough that we have it in the history books. This law, although much is made of it to show Henry's attempt to bring law and order to the land, did not actually add a great deal to legislation that had previously previously been made. Oh. But it did show that you just couldn't go around taking women away from their families. And that it was happening often enough that you needed to make a law about it. No. Oh. No, not so. They weren't abducting heiresses left, right and centre. This seems to be a very rare crime. Oh. The law was brought about following one particular crime. And this law shows that knee-jerk reactions were as much a thing then as they are now. And this wasn't Margaret Cabell, but Marjorie Royton. And we'll come on to Cabell because there's a lot more detail about her case. Okay. Royton may have been the cat- catalyst for the act, but there's not a lot of information about her, so... Okay. And actually, I noticed on Wikipedia that they attribute the law to the abduction of Jane Statham. But I didn't think the timeline worked for that, because the petition about her case was sent to Henry in December 1485, but the act had already been passed in November, so I'm going to stick to Mar- <laughs> Marjorie Royton, because it makes more sense. Yes, it does. <laughs> it doesn't sound that rare if we've got three people already... <laughs> In the same time area. I mean, it wasn't It wasn't as if there was an epidemic, I think. Mm. Understood. On Sunday the 9th of September 1487, a gentleman, and I mean that in a sort of strict hierarchical sense, not, a, <laughs> not his character, as we'll see, Robert Bellingham broke into Marjorie's father's house with several accomplices. Was he a younger son, do we know? Because I can see younger sons doing this more often than older sons. I would have thought. Okay. I would have thought that sounds more likely. Yeah. I don't have any property. I will take yours and you, but yours. I might not keep you. I'll <laughs> put you in a coop off to the side. The family were having supper and they were told to, quote, sit still, for he that stirreth shall die, whatsoever he be, unquote. Oh my goodness. Yeah, these men carried Marjorie off by force because Marjorie had re- recently been widowed and had a life interest in her late husband's estate, as well as properties given to her by her father. So she was quite a prize. Yes. And Henry VII took a personal interest in this case. Nine days after the abduction, the justices of the peace met at Warwick, but they did so in the presence of several members of the King's Council, including William Hussey, the Chief Justice of England. (laughs) That sounds so inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) And Andrew Dimmock, the King's solicitor. Okay. And neither of these men had anything to do with Warwickshire, so they must have been instructed by Henry to attend the hearing. Mm -hmm. In April 1488, the accused men were taken to the Marshalsea prison, and then they stood trial in July, when the case collapsed. Oh, no. Why? Yeah, not enough evidence. They went into somebody's house. There were witnesses. They took her by fours. Let me guess. The witnesses were women. No, it rather looks as if Marjorie's father might have come to some accommodation with Bellingham. Oh, Mm. traitor. Yeah, Bellingham married Marjorie and the father bequeathed Bellingham a silver cup in his will. What? When Marjorie died, Bellingham was the overseer of her will. 
But maybe the father had no choice at that point because if the daughter had been violated, he might not want her back because, you know, what's he going to do to do with her? Yeah. She's just going to be a drain on his... Resources rest. for the rest of her life. Mm. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, better to pretend it's all lovely and what a happy that family. poor girl. Yeah. And I'm assuming she's a girl. I don't know how old she was. Well, widowed the first time, probably in her 20s, I would think. You just don't know. I mean, uh, Margaret Beaufort was widowed when she was 14, <laughs> 13, 14, didn't she? Yes, but that was quite unusual. I know yeah. people think that they got married very young, but aristocrats did get married younger. But even then, it was usually 16, 17 was the age. So if mm. she wasn't an aristocrat, she but she did have property, it could be later in her 20s that they could get married for the first time. 24, mm. I think, was the average age for women to get married. I think it's 27 for men. Yeah, it was older because yeah. they needed to get themselves set up before they could get married. Yeah, and if they were journeymen, they weren't allowed to get married. Yes. Anyway, why did Henry VII think this case was important enough to send his own people to oversee it? Was he going to get some of the property? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, for once, for once, this isn't financial. Bellingham and at least one of his accomplices, Thomas Woodshaw, or Woodshaw, Woodshaw probably, were royal servants. And it's not known what position Bellingham held, possibly something to do with the royal forests. Oh. But Henry may have seen this as a challenge to his authority by his own servants. Yes. Yes. It took place soon after the Battle of Stoke, so he may have been feeling that he had to stamp down on these people. Yes. And, and show them who's boss. The abduction took place in September. The act against taking away of women against their wills was passed in November, as I said, which is very quick. Very fast. Mm. Incredibly fast. And this shouldn't necessarily be seen as a desire to protect women for a horrific ordeal, rather as a desire by Henry to come down hard on any of his servants who thought they could flout the king's authority by committing crimes. Yeah. So, I, I mean, he may have thought, oh, poor, poor, poor girl, we need to put a stop to this, but... He did what is more what it was like. <laughs> I did not give him permission. Well, another difference between the 1487 Act and the previous ones was that the latter one allowed for the punishment of accomplices. Ooh. And it seems that Henry included this clause specifically so that he could get his hands on Thomas Wood Woodshaw and any others who were royal servants. Good. The historian E.W. Ives, who wrote all about this saga said that this showed that Henry wasn't making legislation rationally, but reacting to whatever his current preoccupation was. He seems to think that much of Henry's laws were made on this on-the-hoof manner. Right. And this explains why some of his laws were not prosecuted with the vigour they might have been. Because he says, quote, Where legislation was a reflection of a present interest, it mattered while the interest lasted. And except where money was concerned, that was not for long, unquote. Ah. I mean, we've seen where money was concerned that he was quite happy to chase up these cases yes. <laughs> vigorously for decades. Yes. In the decade following 1488, the prosecutions for rape fell by 20%. So we might conclude that the act was very successful indeed. Or we might conclude that the indictments under the act were just treated in a rather lacklustre way. Oh. <laughs> you just can't tell. Anyway, Margaret Cabell, let's get on to her at last and her story. And she's, she's quite amazing. And so is her mum. 1502. Margaret was a widow. And she, had, she was wealthy on two counts. Again, her husband had left her a third of his goods and chattels. And also she was the heir of the Bassett family of Bloor. 
I think her father had died and her uncle William Bassett had become head of the family and Margaret's mother Eleanor was keeping house for William Bassett. I don't mean she was running around with a hoover. I mean, she was, she was, <laughs> she was organising the estate. Yes. On her husband's death in 1500, Margaret had returned to live at Blois. Blois. I made that sound French. No, no, Blois. <laughs> she, was, she was 25. And she was now engaged to Ralph Egerton. He was a member of Prince Arthur's household. Ah. And Margaret's mother's half-brother. What? Mm. Ew. That's your uncle. Only half uncle. Oh, no. That, no, 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 no. No? No, no. Oh, that just gives me the creeps all the way down my spine. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> okay. They're actually having a party to celebrate this betrothal. No, Tuesday, don't celebrate Tuesday it. Tuesday the 1st of February. <laughs> well, everyone seems very happy about it. <laughs> oh, gross. Um, it does seem to be a... A love match. I don't care. <laughs> Your children are going to come out deformed. Yeah. Well, they're having the celebration when 120 armed men. Oh, my goodness. Led by. I know. That's an army. You need a, you need a big house just to fit them all in, wouldn't you? They're led by Roger Vernon, the son and heir. So he's the older one of Sir Henry Vernon. And they attacked the house. The Bassets put up a fight, but they've been taken completely unawares. Yes. And Roger Vernon and his men were able to get Margaret out of the house and onto a horse. And she was told if she didn't come quietly, she'd be locked up somewhere in the wilds of the Peak District until she agreed to his terms. And then they galloped off. But there doesn't seem to be any real reason for this abduction. The two families knew each other well. It's not as if was it, you know, he was a complete stranger. Was he spurned? That's what I, that was my feeling about it. Yeah. Because William, William Bassett and Sir Henry Vernon had both been retained by Lord Hastings. So, you know, they were colleagues. I don't know if yes. they were friends, but colleagues. Well, not anymore. <laughs> no. The Vernon land and the Bassett land were right next to each other. So, yeah, I think that he wanted Margaret and either Margaret or the family said, no, no we're going to stick with Ralph Egerton. Creepy as it might sound. It was so creepy. Oddly, just the fact that she was going to marry her uncle makes me feel like this one wasn't so bad to be abducted. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe Roger was trying to save her from herself. I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> Eleanor Bassett, Margaret's mum, immediately started organising a rescue party for her daughter. I don't know where the, where the uncle was in all this. Yeah, I'm OK with this guy getting her. <laughs> They had to be quick with this raid, uh, this rescue party because once the raiders crossed the River Dove, they'd be in Derbyshire, and that was Vernon country. So right. if the Bassets followed them there, they would then become the invaders. Right. The rescue party rode off with Ralph Egg Egerton and Fort Parsons, amongst others, with Eleanor taking the lead. Really? She got on a horse and went, oh, good for you. I love strong yeah. mums. They caught up with the raiders at the river, but they were outnumbered and couldn't get to Margaret. So mm. all they could do was stand there and watch her being taken away oh, again. Oh, goodness. And Margaret was apparently badly treated because we have her testimony. So we hear all about it from her point of view because she was up in court oh. on several occasions. And the following day, she was taken to a church in Derby where, fearing more ill treatment, she agreed to the marriage. Oh. In those days, England was more like America in their state boundaries because jurisdiction didn't cross county boundaries in the way that no. it does now. I mean, we have a national police force. 
Yes. I mean, we have we have Somerset and Devon police and Thames Valley police, but you know, if you cross if you cross the county boundary, <laughs> don't think you've got away with it. You haven't. You know, the police will just come straight after you. You know, I have no so, idea if Canada has anything like that. We have the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is a national police force, but a lot of municipalities have their own police force and have booted out the RCMP. Right. The RCMP doesn't have a very good reputation right now. Um, oh. They are ineffective, quite costly, and don't care. <laughs> oh. <laughs> They've actually been taken to court a few times recently. The, there was a shooting in Newfoundland or New Brunswick, and the investigation laid it firmly on the RCMP's feet of being such a bad organization so mm. we're seeing right now a lot of municipalities booting them out Surrey's one of the big ones that's happening now in BC they've actually kicked them out and Surrey's a very large municipality and they're instituting their own police force because the RCMP is so bad so now I don't know I would like to say mm. that there would be no jurisdiction boundaries because the RCMP is a national police force but I don't know how. I'm it... I mean, I'm assuming this from America, having seen it on films where the yes. police get to the get to the boundary and then they stop and. Yes, not necessarily county lines, but state no, lines. No. That's why state, they have the FBI. Lines, yeah. yeah. No, county, counties here, states. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Now I'm going to have to look into my own <laughs> <laughs> laws here. I have no idea. And well, that's why Roger took Margaret to his uncle William Vernon. They've all got Uncle Williams. I used to have an Uncle William as well. But <laughs> obviously, it's an uncle name. Um, he lived in a strange enclave that was neither Staffordshire nor Derbyshire. So, but where he thought where Roger thought he'd be safe from investigation. As she was taken into the house, Roger Vernon was holding one arm, and Uncle William Vernon was holding the other. So, William can't have had any illusion about Margaret was not there on a, under her own volition. Yeah. And William's wife then came in and was surprised to see the new bride looking so, quote, sad and heavy, unquote. Oh, dear. And she asked Margaret whether she'd been brought there by force. And Margaret told her in no uncertain terms that she had and what she planned to do with them all once she got free. <gasps> oh. And William's wife, who doesn't appear to have a name, then laid into William and her nephew Roger saying, quote, it was a pity that Roger Vernon levied by cause that he took away a good gentlewoman as the said Margaret is, contrary to her mind and will, unquote. And that's obviously, that's a quote from a later testimony because she didn't call her the said Margaret for a face. <laughs> Roger replied, quote, I marvel greatly that you will show your mind to such a strong strumpet and a whore as she is, <gasps> for she can keep no counsel and all you do is to undo me forever, unquote. Oh, my goodness. That's your feeling of who you just made your wife? It does make you feel that he was spurned at some point, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, he is mad. Mm. That is somebody who definitely was thrown off. Yeah, and now he's annoyed with William's wife because the way she's approaching it is making him seem that the, the he's in the wrong. He is in the wrong. <laughs> oh, how dare. Well, Margaret replied that, quote, she would do so. She would tell everybody about it. In any place wheresoever she came and would not let for no man, unquote. And this she did, because the following morning in mass, apparently she, she made quite a scene. Good. So Roger realised it was time to move on, and they set off for the Welsh marches where Roger had a an ally near Hereford. And he was hoping that when Margaret realised that no one knew where she was, 
I've said there'd be no hope of rescue, that she might knuckle under and become the dutiful wife and, you know, shut up. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Then Eleanor turned up at William Vernon's house at the head of armed men. And still, where's Uncle her, her Uncle William? <laughs> Who knows? Unfortunately, they found Margaret had already gone and no one would tell her where. So I imagine that William Vernon's rather more sympathetic wife has been shut up somewhere. Mm. So Eleanor set off to inform against Roger Vernon and his accomplices to the Earl of Shrewsbury, amongst others. Unfortunately, the Earl of Shrewsbury was related to Sir Henry Vernon, Roger's father. Are you kidding? Mm. So the commission was very slow in coming. It took five weeks. And this went on until October. And remember, Margaret had been abducted on the 1st of February. At that point, couldn't you skip him and go to the king? Probably not. But could you? There oh, are very strict hierarchies with these things, oh. as we find out, find out in a bit. Darn it. Go straight to mm. Bray and tell him how much money that guy had and how much he could get. Yes. <laughs> he went after him. <laughs> Done. <laughs> but Margaret had made plans of her own. Ooh. Soon after Easter, she got away. And she stops and passes by and persuaded them to give her a horse and take her to London. Ooh, good for her. Yeah, this hierarchy thing. By right, she should have taken her complaint to the Bishop of Lichfield, where she was. But she was keen to get as much space between her and Roger as she could. Yeah. At least that was the version that Margaret told the court. It's also possible... These, these people do seem to be exceptionally generous if they're just passers-by. True. Because... I mean, she's just, she's around Hereford Way, and they're saying, yeah, we'll take you to London. <laughs> it's a long way. Yeah. But Margaret may not have wanted them to get into trouble if they were trespassing where they had no right to be. Right. So. But Roger was soon on their trail, and he caught up with them in Pershaw in Worcestershire. It wouldn't have helped his case to have used force to get her back. So he joined the group and travelled to London with them. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Yes, I, he just feels really smarmy, doesn't he? Smarmy and slimy. And yeah. Ugh. He even bought Margaret a horse and played the loving and attentive husband. <gasps> oh, of course he did. Ah, oh, mm. totally take me off. Well, it's a sensible move because later his servants were able to tell the court that Roger and Margaret had travelled to London harmoniously, you know, as man and wife. Oh, no. But if that was the case, why did Roger rush to seek sanctuary in Westminster as soon as they got to London? That's not normal behaviour for a no. loving husband. No, it's not. <laughs> Margaret then discovered that her lodgings at the Saracen's Head in Fleet Street were very close to the Bolton Gun, where Sir Henry Vernon was now lodged. Mm. And now we come over to Sir Henry's account of what happened next. He said that as soon as Margaret arrived in London, she sent a servant to him to ask him to call on her. And when he arrived, Sir Henry asked her whether he should say, quote, Welcome daughter or mistress, unquote. Margaret replied, quote, Daughter, and it pleased you, and so I trust ye will take me and be a good father to your son and me, unquote. What? He then asked her about her treatment, and she assured him that she'd not be badly treated. She loved her husband and had consented to the abduction and marriage. That is such bull. She would not have ended up in court if that any of that was true. And the next day, Roger sent Margaret a pike from Westminster Abbey. He's making himself at home, isn't he? Taking yes, their fish. He is. <laughs> and she sent him a dish of apples, apparently. Did she really? She cooked the pike and sent it to Sir Henry, who kept part for his own dinner and sent her back the other half. So they're all just one big happy family. 
I don't understand. I'm, I'm confused. Well, this is not exactly what happened. According to Margaret, she vehemently denied this version of events. Good, because it makes no <laughs> sense if she fled and traveled that far that quickly for her to turn Unless around Roger and Roger had talked around on the journey, I suppose. Well, but then they could have she... just turned around and headed back home. Yeah. She said Sir Henry just turned up. She hadn't asked him to come. He had tried to persuade her, quote, for certain considerations, unquote, to accept her marriage with good grace. No. Margaret told him that she'd been ill-treated and that she wasn't Roger's wife. She only talked to Henry to try and work out how much he had had to do with the abduction, she said. As for the pike, she didn't know until it appeared on the table that it came from Roger. And when she learnt that, she sent it to Sir Henry because she didn't want it. And he did send half of it back and she sent it back again. So I should imagine it was pretty inedible by this point. Mm. <laughs> Running up and down Fleet Street with a bowl of fish, but... Margaret Kevill's court case, which should have been plain sailing, because the facts weren't in doubt and the law was on her side. It was illegal to abduct people. Yes. Everyone involved was guilty of a crime. And, yeah, even the accomplices were now guilty. So even Sir Henry and William Vernon could be indicted, since they had had the part in the crime. Right. The first accomplice to be indicted was a man called Thomas Follyjam who was a gentleman known for riot, apparently. Ah. And he was bailed to appear before Derby's assizes, but Derby being Vernon country, he was inevitably acquitted. Of course. As were all the other accomplices who followed him to court. Oh, no. Since this had failed, Margaret herself brought charges, including against Roger, although he never actually appeared in court. This time, they were let off on a technicality. Are you kidding me? One of the names had been written wrong. Margaret had accused Lawrence Hone, horsekeeper, whereas in fact his name was Lawrence Horsekeeper. And Margaret argued that this shouldn't bring down the whole trial. But yeah. the jury said that since Lawrence Hone didn't exist, all the defendants should be discharged. It sounds a little dodgy. Yes, it does. I've just been reading all about this um, based on another thing, but Henry VII passed several acts to try and curb the corrupt corruption of juries throughout his reign. And he keep he kept having to do more and more acts because it just you know Wouldn't wasn't stick. working. So this sounds like a case either of corruption or intimidation, because Sir Henry Vernon was a very powerful man, especially in Derbyshire. Yes. So I don't know how many jurors are going to go against uh. the man who pretty much owns Derbyshire. Yeah. Margaret then involved she wasn't giving up. She kept going. She then involved the King's Bench and brought an action against Roger, stating that she was not married since it had been procured through imprisonment and violence. Then Vernon's lawyer said that there had been no violence. And even if there had, the violence would have taken place in Staffordshire, and Margaret was married in Derby, so she can't have married under duress. So there wasn't any violence, but even if there had been, <laughs> it was before she was married. I'm really hoping for a happy ending, but my hopes are kind of plummeting. <laughs> well, we know what the two are like. But he was he was conveniently ignoring the, any the threats of further violence that uh, she'd had to put up with. Yes, even that person being there is a threat. Hmm. Yeah. It all sounds horribly familiar for you know present day, doesn't it? Fifteen oh four. Roger sued Margaret's rescuers for abducting his wife. Wow. 
He's got a nerve. Oh, my goodness. But that was thrown out of court when Margaret's lawyer said that could someone who gave a woman a lift to market now be accused of abducting her? Hmm. So a happy ending to that one, thankfully. Then some of Roger Vernon's accomplices brought action against Margaret and her mother for malicious prosecutions in Derby in 1503 because they'd been acquitted. So they claimed Mm. damages from Margaret and Eleanor for what we'd now call wrongful arrest. And this threw up a difficult legal conundrum because it was in the public interest that complaints against people should be protected or else no one's going to come forward with complaints. Yes. But these people had been found innocent. So to deny them compensation would be to ignore the not guilty findings. Oh, my goodness. So despite constant references to the Act of 1487, Margaret was getting nowhere because the Vernons were just too powerful. I'm going back to only liking the Tudor clothing and nothing else about the Tudor (laughs) time period. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm impressed with Margaret and her her mum. Yes. Because she couldn't even rely on the king. Because when she first arrived in London, she she had had an audience with the king and he had quickly put Thomas Lovell and John Mordaunt, so that's two of his new men and closest advisers, on the case. And they'd interviewed Uncle William Vernon believed everything he said and left it at that. And this gave William the right to say to Margaret that she couldn't do anything to him since he'd already been cleared, and by the king's men, no less. Mm. Margaret then turned her attention to Sir Henry Vernon, Roger's father, with the accusation that he was the architect of the whole plot. Margaret said that Henry had told Roger to abduct her, he had made his houses available to him, he funded the scheme... He'd advised Roger to get her away to the Marches of Wales and he had put pressure on Margaret to drop her complaint. Now, she couldn't rely on common law since he'd be required to stand before a Derbyshire jury where he'd get off. She had to rely on the Crown. But now we're back with the previous case of Marjorie Royton and the reason for the Act being passed in the first place. Sir Henry Vernon was a royal servant. He was a member of Prince Arthur's household and Henry could not have royal servants committing offences that were ultimately against the Crown. Right. Sir Henry was required to pay £900, and all in all, the Vernon family had to pay £1,166, 13 shillings and fourpence. But she's still married. For the time being, yeah. Roger got off, although he may have lost positions and duchies and things due to the case, but he managed to obtain a writ of supersedious, which froze all indictments against him and those indicted with him. Now, I'm not sure how he managed to do that, probably because he's a Vernon. And he also obtained a pardon, which assumes that he was guilty as hell, but he's been forgiven. Just making me mad. Margaret did manage to secure an end to her marriage. Although it's not known whether it was through litigation or through Roger's death, since the documentation is missing. And in June 1509, she and Ralph Egerton, who'd been waiting for her all this time, received the dispensation for consanguinity. Since, yes, well, I put here, since if you remember he was mother's half-brother, well, yes, you do remember that. (laughs) So they were free to marry at last. And her husband rose through Henry VIII's court, and so Margaret became Lady Egerton. It's not known when she died, but she was certainly alive in 1534, since she was still drawing the jointure from her first marriage at that point. I hope she poisoned Roger. 
Who knows? Well, she may have died then, or it's also thought that she may have bankrupted the, the Cabell family through the drawing of her jointure. <laughs> that might oh. be, they just ran out of money. And that's why we don't hear from her again. So that was the st- ultimately, well, say ultimately happy. She, they did seem to want to marry each other. Mm. No, not happy. Well, the story of Margaret Cabell and Marjorie Royton, who didn't have a happy ending, and how Henry the Fourth passed a law specifically to indict Henry the, the accomplices of Henry the, Henry the Seventh passed a law specifically to indict the accomplices in the Royton case. So, as for not making laws quote, upon the spur of a particular occasion for the present, unquote, as, my, as Francis Bacon said. Well, this law certainly was. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. That wasn't a happy story. <laughs> well, I, I, well, the way I read it, the Margaret Rolfe thing was, you know, a match made in heaven. So it's yeah. a very, very messed up heaven. Yeah. <laughs> you? Well, if, as long as they were happy, that's the important thing. And their strange malformed children. Yes. I don't know whether they had children. We don't hear that about that, so. We can hope not. not. Yeah. <laughs> that's the end of our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> well, surely people don't listen to the Tudors to hear happy things. True, true. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.